If you have a Bible, would you please open it with me to 2 Samuel chapter 17. That is where we will be today, taking up David's story. But before we do that, let us together beseech the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you have made, this day of worship, this day of rest, this day of feasting. I pray, God, that as we open your word now, as your body, as your people, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to receive your word, Lord, that we may know you better, know ourselves better, Lord, and better serve you, better trust you, put our faith in you, Lord, that we might draw closer to you, even as you are now drawing closer to us. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, we jump back into the middle of this story where David is on the run. David, in his old age, because of his sins, has landed very close to where he began, fleeing family members who want to murder him, who want to take his throne, who want to deny him his crown. He is in the wilderness. He is bereft of friendship. He's bereft of a supply line. And and what we're going to see in chapter 17 is that God has been watching. God knows what is going on with David. God sees David, all of the needs that are outlined in chapter 15, verses 31 to 37. God is going to address all of them. He's going to address all of them, not in the way I think that David would have expected, not in the way I would have expected, having read the story up to this point. We're going to find out some, some very difficult things about God in this chapter. When God wants to chastise his children, he uses evil men. And those evil men go about attacking the children of God willfully of their own volition. And what they are doing, even as they are fulfilling the discipline of the Lord on God's children, is they are themselves heaping up their own judgment. Our God is very efficient. He will judge everybody simultaneously. David in this story is being chastised. Uh, Absalom and his followers are being destroyed. And all of it is working towards the purposes of God. But in the story, right, how does David feel sitting in the wilderness, knowing what his son has done to his wives in the face of the whole nation, knowing that his former counselors, in fact his grandfather-in-law now, because he's married to Bathsheba, is, is rooting against him, his own son. Could you imagine being driven out of your home by your own son? So if I were sitting there with Dave and I was like, ah, Dave, come on, man. Calm down. You deserve this. And don't worry. Through this, God is judging your enemies. Right? I would feel an awful lot like a Job's counselor at this point. Like, ah, you deserve this. But, you know, God got it. Don't worry about it. And how often do we find ourselves in extraordinarily difficult circumstances and or, or our friends, our loved ones, our spouses, our children, we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, and, and it's really difficult for us to sit down and, and think of a story like this and just be like, ah, don't worry about it. Okay, that's not how this is supposed to work. There is, as Byron said, true suffering. For goodness sakes, you're saved out from drowning by being harpooned in the hip. That sounds like the way God saves people to me. And that the God that we serve... As, as Lewis so pointedly said, it is good, but he is dangerous. 
He is a dangerous God. He's dangerous for your sins. He's dangerous towards your idols. He's dangerous towards the sins and idols of this world. And even as he's cleansing and purifying and sanctifying us, which is painful from top to bottom, he is even then judging your enemies and his enemies. And you stand back and you think, why? Why why all that pain? Isn't there an easier way? And then when you look at a story like this, you're like, no, this is actually pretty pretty, um, efficient. This is a pretty easy way to go about it, right? One, One chapter, and everybody is on their knees. What? One evil man is hanging from a tree. David is now backed into the wilderness where he, where he started praying to God, sending A-bombs via prayer chain the way that he was supposed to be fighting all along. This story is quite remarkable. And it is the story, right? These are the things that we talk about in the light, that when we go into the darkness, we are supposed to remember. Now, I, you know, you've heard this. It's a line from a Mumford and Sons song. I know that it comes from somewhere further back in our history, but don't doubt, right, in the darkness what you learned in the light. This is an old adage in England, and I think it's, it's sitting here in our nice Sunday clothes, full of coffee, heading towards fellowship and fun this afternoon. Here in the light, we need to consider some extraordinary things so that later when we descend in darkness, when we go back into our work week this week, if you are in darkness, you remember that there is one who sees you. There is one whose counsel in in heaven is wiser than men, is more powerful than man's, knows exactly what you're going through, knows exactly where you've been, and knows exactly where you are going. And, and he is controlling every aspect of it. And, and when, <laughs> it's right to life Sunday. I don't know if you guys know that. But it, it's so funny to me because a lot of um, unbelievers, right, a lot of progressives, a lot of the left thought, well, why are they going to keep going and marching in D.C. when they've, when they've overturned Roe? Because that's what mar- the march on right to life Sunday is all about. And, you know, they thought, well, why? Why are they going to keep doing it? Because the fight, the fight isn't over. We're here on Right to Life Sunday after they've overturned Roe. And, and what, what this story reminds me of is our own day. I remember watching the correspondence dinner years ago when Obama was making fun of Trump and everyone was laughing at him at the correspondence dinner because he's a buffoon and a windbag, and he is. And then, that, and then God, through all of this, these machinations of man, raises up a windbag and somehow... Right? The court changes, and we overthrow Roe versus Wade. So like, if you go back and you look at the last five years, you see stories like 2 Samuel 17 is exactly how history works. God chastises his people and disciplines them and sanctifies them, and even as he's doing it, he is overturning the councils of the world that stand against him. He will not be mocked. He will not be outmaneuvered. He will not be outwitted. He will not be outsmarted. And I think that is the God that we all need to be reminded of. I do, and I think you do. So now let us turn to 2 Samuel chapter 17 and start to unpack this remarkable story, this story that highlights God's counsel in heaven overcoming every other counsel on earth. Now it says in chapter 17, Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, And I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king 
And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And I will say the, the advice is right because it's excellent military strategy. There David is, weak, out in the wilderness. Now is the time, right? And if you love Israel as much as he does, what you don't want is a bunch of loss of life and a bunch of destruction of property. Let's go out there and get the one, isolate and get the one guy we want. And then what, what, what he wants to do is he wants to be the kingmaker. He now will bring back Israel to Absalom. And all Absalom, who is, whose name means the son of peace, is the one who brought peace to Israel. He, he will send out his henchmen. He will kill David. And all of Israel will be delivered from this evil king. That, that's the idea that's being pitched here. But we know more about what's going on than... than um, the characters would care for us to know. Because didn't David isolate Ahithophel's, right? Remember, Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather, right? And, and what did, how did David kill his enemy in order to get Bathsheba? He isolated him, <laughs> left him out in the front of the military, and slaughtered just the one guy. And so the strategy that David used in order to commit his sins is now the strategy that his, his enemy wants to use on him. And, and he, it's a great plan. This is a fantastic plan. Um, it, it, it highlights a number of important military strategies. Move quickly. Have a, a force that outnumbers your enemy and isolate your enemy so that he is easier to destroy. Uh, if, you, if you want, <laughs> this is the textbook case. Uh, the Hundred Days War back in uh, the Gulf War. Do you remember this? Uh, the first time we invaded Iraq. I know. There, some of you guys are young. There was this other time we invaded Iraq, uh, not just after 9-11. And they called it Hundred Days War, and it, was, and it was exactly like this. We moved very quickly. We had an, an overwhelming force, and people were surrendering to helicopters, which if you don't know anything about military tactics, that's really hard to do, right? 100,000 guys surrendering to a helicopter, that's how well the war was going. And, and this strategy is, is fantastic. If Absalom goes with this, he will be king in a few days, and, and Israel will be going in a very different direction. But <laughs> this is what I love. So now Absalom is actually going to do something very wise. And in his pursuit of wisdom, God is going to use that pursuit of wisdom to destroy him. Now, this is a tactic that I find fascinating because God, God wants Absalom, right? He, he gives him the book of Proverbs. He gives Proverbs and he says, hey, this is what I want my children to do. It says in Proverbs 24, 6, for by wise guidance you can wage your war and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Well, that's, that's very wise. So Absalom's like, you know what? Let's get a second opinion. And that, believe it or not, following wise counsel, the wise counsel that's handed down, is actually going to lead to what undoes Absalom. Because another counselor is going to come in now and counter the excellent advice that he's already given. Now, it's interesting, in, in, in this court, why isn't Abishai, all, or Hushai, I'm sorry, I get my shies confused. Why isn't Hushai already there in the council of war? I, I think there is some distrust. And yet, right, this, this is how God likes to do it. We're going to take a guy who's not even originally included. He's going to come in. He's going to give a second opinion. And, and we're going to see whose wisdom is greater, God's 
working through Hushai, or Ahithophel's, who is simply seeking his own glory. Now we, we look to chapter, uh, chapter 17, verses 5 through 13. It says, Then Absalom said, Call Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Ushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Ushai said to Absalom, now, this, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Ushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to the battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. That's his counsel. Now, does that sound like as easy a strategy as the first one? No. Right? How long does it take to gather all the troops of Israel? That's not something that's you can't muster the role of all, the entire nation quickly. And his plan is to what? He, he's appealing to Absalom. Now, remember Absalom. Absalom is the one who waited patiently for many years in order to kill his brother. Absalom is the one that after he was trying to get a hold of Joab all that time, and Joab would not return his phone calls, was like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to burn his field down. That'll get his attention. Right? Absalom is a man of action, a man of cunning, a man of violence, a man of blood. And so this plan says, no, I'm not going to go in your behalf and, and make you this, this um, wise king and bring Israel to you like a bride so that you can be the son of peace where all you do is destroy your father and you bring... No, what we're going to do is we're going to put you at the head of an army and we're going to burn everything to the ground. We'll tear entire cities down and we will descend upon them like the dew of heaven and we will put all of them to the ban. Now the ban, if you recall, is a strategy used by God to destroy his enemies and he is the only one who issues that order. And so here... The counsel is, we, we will go out and we will kill everybody. Every man, every woman, every child will be destroyed so that you, Absalom, you great man, will be king. This plan, on the face of it, is stupid. This plan is foolish. This plan is unnecessarily destructive. It's disproportional response beyond anything that's reasonable. And but, it's super cunning because he's appealing to Absalom's pride. He's appealing to, right? He's doing kind of two things at once, even. He's saying, oh, your dad is too good for you, man. He's too strong. He's too powerful. He's too wise. His men are too good. And then at the same time, he's talking about how, oh, yeah, but you can't overcome him. He's turning his father into a Goliath-type character, which is going to appeal to Absalom's pride. Oh, I can take him down. I can ride at the head of an army that slaughters men, women, and children. Let me at him. 
So he's both <laughs> undermining right, his, his view of himself, the view of Israel, the view of their ability to fight David, while at the same time appealing to his pride to rise up so that he could overcome his father. And, and Absalom is a fool, and he falls for it. Right? Because this is, um, this is like a playground strategy, right? You, you kind of push, you, you kind of, if you're a large person on a playground back in the day, you know how easy it is to push around little kids? Super easy. You can also terrify them a little bit very easily just by your size. But then what you do is you kind of goad them into being the one to throw the first punch. Now, I don't want to give you little kids any ideas. I'm looking down here at the Lilia family. <laughs> Okay, but in my pagan youth, this, this was very easy. You frightened somebody out of their wits while at the same time goading them into doing the, the very thing you want to do yourself, and then, oh, look, playground teacher, it was them that did it. And, and so this whole, this whole strategy here is it's very effective. You're not man enough to do it, Absalom, but, man, you can do it. Right? And now he thinks of his father. He thinks of the, his father who used to kill lions, his father who used to fight bears, his father who went out alone on the field of battle and overthrew a giant that nobody thought he could kill. And so Absalom is like, yes, I want to be a giant killer now, and the giant is my father. So it's a weird, weird undermining and yet appeal to his pride simultaneously that works perfectly. Now, Ushai is very clever because this plan, mustering all of Israel, going out into the wilderness, trying to hunt David and his people down, looking in pits, it's going to take Israel a long time. It's going to give David actually enough time to rally the troops, gather supplies, and pick his own place of battle. Because as I've said before, one of the most cunning ways that you can fight a war is to not actually engage with the enemy. If you have an army and you're in the field... Sometimes the best strategy is, to, is not to come into contact with the enemy. This is George Washington's plan. There's a number of Roman generals who pulled this off. Because eventually what you'll, you, you, right, you can't just let the army go, but then you spend a lot of time and a lot of effort going around in the wilderness trying to hunt down the army. And, and big armies sometimes wear out real fast, and, and, and they get discouraged, and morale falls. And so what Ushai is doing is giving David enough breathing room here to, in, in order to enact this strategy. Now, there is a pause here. There, there, sort of, things kind of go somewhat out of order because it doesn't really tell us, um, uh, uh, right? Something else happens before we find out in, in chronologically whose advice they're going to take. So you've got these two plans now. Which one is the Council of War going to decide? But then there's there's um, an editorial comment in verse 14, but before that, Ushai, while they're all deciding what they're going to do, sends word to David. So if you skip down to verse um, 15, we're going we're gonna to just keep going with the story in real time. It says, Then Ushai said to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now, Jonathan and Ahamaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David. For they were not to be seen entering the city, but a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man of Beharim, 
who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it, and the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. Then Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house. They said, Where are Amaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water, and, have, um, and when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan by daybreak. Not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. So essentially the point is this. Ushai doesn't wait for anyone to make a decision. He sends a messenger because what David needs to do is act very quickly. He gets word to David, David quickly, but then they drop in this story that sounds an awful lot like Rahab and the spies in the land, which I find to be fascinating. Now, the, this town in Rogel, which means the springs of the wanderers or spies. Now, the question is, was it already called that, and so the spies were hanging out there? Or is it called that because of this story? I don't know. It was a little unclear. But this is the same city where before there was a man throwing dirt on David as he was fleeing and cursing him. So, so he had an enemy there in the town. Remember this guy? He was throwing dirt on David. He was cursing him for being a man of blood. But now there's someone here, a woman, who is his friend, who's willing to hide his spies, who's willing to act like Rahab. Now, what, what this does, right, this is an important story, because if we go with our typology, that if you go with characters in the Bible, what are they telling us? Well, they're telling us that Absalom is like the king of Jericho. Right? He's the one seeking out spies, and he's the one who a, a woman is lying to him, and, and he's being fooled by her. And so here a woman plays this key strategic <laughs> deception here, um, and, and this, is, this is something that's very true. Women make very excellent spies. Um, and, and something like this, right? They don't have to have a sword in order to fight. All she has to do is lie. She, she covers them up, she lies, and now what it does is it, it, it tells us something about who's who. Absalom is like the king of Jericho, David is like Joshua, the right side, the wrong side, and, it, and it's also telling us that, the, that even as David is fleeing into the wilderness, God is, in a sense, reversing the history of Israel. This story isn't happening as he's coming into the land, this story is happening as he's going out of the land. The judgment isn't just on David. The judgment isn't going to just come to Absalom. The judgment is, comes upon Israel itself, whose history now is being reversed because, they, because right, going back, they wanted a king instead of God, so they got one. They got the desires of their heart, and now they have the very thing they wanted, a king like the nations, like a king like Jericho, the king of Jericho, and the whole nation is being judged. You wanted kings? You wanted to have kings like the nations? Well, here you go, fellas. This is what it's like. These are the machinations. These are the plots. These are the sins. This is the corruption. This is the wickedness that, that comes with having kings like the nations. Now, is that in any way putting God off his plan? Is he sitting in heaven going, man, this didn't really work out the way I wanted. How am I ever going to get this Messiah down there? No. <laughs> We find out even though they're rebellion to want a king, he, he says, fine, have one. And through this whole thing, God is always working towards what? The advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. You go to Matthew chapter 1, you read the, liturgy, or the lineage there, and what do we find out? All of this was part of the plan. None of this is outside of God's control. Okay, so now we go back to the council. What are they going 
to decide what is going to be the decision. They have a great plan and they have a terrible plan. Which plan are they going to decide? It says, and Ab- Absalom and all the men of Israel, this is verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel and the council of Ushai, the archite, is be- said that the council of Ushite is better than the council of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And that is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Good try, fellas. Good try. But the Lord God outwitted you, outsmarted you, outcontrolled you, and he put it upon, upon his mind, Absalom's mind, upon Absalom's heart, upon the heart of the whole council to take the bad advice instead of the good advice. This is hilarious to me. And, and so this is, why, like, this is why I like watching like, World Economic Forum. And I'm watching what they're doing, and you're, you're seeing the decisions they're making, and you're like, man, I have no idea how this is going to work out. It looks pretty terrifying, this group, with their great reset and making us all this one giant people who speak one language, who build towers like Babel. Right? That's what they're trying to do. And I'm watching it, and a little bit I'm like, man, this is weird. I don't know how this is going to work out. And then I go and read a story like this, and I'm like, Man, I can't wait to see how God outplays these schmoes. <laughs> right? We're going to now what? They're talking about darkening the sun. They're talking about getting rid of sheep in Holland because they fart too much and it's going to somehow kill us all. <laughs> and, and they're going there with their councils and they're speaking wisdom to one another. And I'm watching and I'm like, I mean, you know what the price, prices of food are doing in Eastern Europe? It's not good. But at the same time, I'm like, man... All of that counsel, and God, it's it just an offhanded comment. Well, God made sure that they took the bad advice. And I was like, man, I, I really wish I could be in the room where somebody takes the bad advice at World Economic Forum, and we start to see the whole thing crumple. And, you know, I, I re, there's a video that I love to watch. And, and it was, again, we're going to bring up my friend Trump. I'll call him that. That's fine. He's a good guy. There's no more row, so we're going to call her friend. And there is this moment where people found out that he was running. It was like news anchor after news anchor, SNL skit after SNL skit, everybody just laughing at him. But, but I, I like to watch that video because I think I can hear an even subtler laugh from slightly further away. I'm like, yes, yes, that is our Lord laughing in heaven because he's like, of course this is who I'm going to use to do some things that I really think uh, would bless my people. And so right, they're, they're all cackling here because, oh, good, we're going to go and get David. And if, and if you're reading this verse and think of these guys in their circle and their fancy clothes and they're, sh- they're all sharpening their sword and they're getting ready, they're, you can hear them cackling and laughing. But if you listen very carefully, there is a laugh, a deeper, heartier laugh coming from further off. And this is the way the Lord works. So don't wring your hands. Don't look upon the machinations of, the, of people who hate God, people who are doing everything they can to stop him, to stop his people, to control things, to control the environment, to control their destiny, to control their, right, their origins. They're doing everything they can to control everything that they can. And there is one who sits in heaven and chuckles. Says, nice try, boys. Now, Hushai's ponderous, heavy-handed proposal is accepted by them. 
Why? Because th- this is what we read in Job 5.12. Job chapter 5, verse 12. He, God, frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, I can't do much about the World Economic Forum. I can't do much about Bill Gates, right? I, I never see the guy, never talk to the guy. I'm not really sure what he's up to. Apparently, we're all going to be eating bugs now. But what, what this verse tells us, Proverbs 21.1, is that in heaven, there is God holding the heart of these men who hate him, who are trying to rule the world, and, and he's doing this to their hearts. Eh, we'll go left. Eh, we'll go right. And we'll do this. And we'll do that. And they think they're so powerful. They think they're so wise. They think they're so capable. And there is one who who holds their heart in his hand, and he's like, eh, we'll go this way. And we think, right, we're so, in our own lives, we think we're so powerful. We think we can control everything. We think, oh, you know, I'll make enough money so I never have to worry. I'll, I'll, I'll do this, I'll do that, right? We'll go into the city, we make all these plans, we start thinking about how much we can control our own destiny, we can control our families. And, and our hearts are in the hands of one in heaven who goes, oh, we'll go this way. We'll go that way. Now, you tell me how you're going to defeat that God. Truly. Right? Even there, <laughs> even if we were like, all right, let's 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 do it. Let's just... Let's, let's create a think tank. Let's get all of us in a room together, and let's just like spit, throw spitballing ideas around about who we, how we could defeat this God. And even as we're sitting there having this conversation, our hearts are going whatever direction he wants. And so this does two things. To the enemies of God, I say good luck. Nice try. Have fun. And to myself, I say, now what do I have to worry about? Really? I mean, really. Proverbs 21.30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Isaiah 8.10, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Isaiah 29.14, therefore, behold, I will, again, do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So even in that verse, he's talking about how he's going to do good things to them, wondrous things to them. And even as he's doing wondrous and good things to them, he is defying the best wisdom they have. So now let's go the other direction. Let's say, okay, let's have a think tank where we sit down and we think, you know what, let's try to outdo God with glory. Let's try to outdo God. Let's think of this family that's in need, and let us think, of every conceivable way to bless them, and we will try to out you God doing it. And we will sit down in our wisdom, and, the, and all of our wisdom to bless them will be as nothing to the wisdom of God in blessing that family. He outwits us in war. He outwits us in, in blessing. He outwits us in punishment. He outwits us in grace. There's no outdoing him. You're not, you're not, you don't, you cannot come up with a better plan than he is going to come up with to bless you. Now, we had a long section read for us this morning. 
and it has, it, it has important details. If you want to understand why bad things happen to good people and what God is doing about it, you guys ought to read books like Hosea. You guys ought to read books like Habakkuk. Because in, in that, the prophet is told things. Right? Habakkuk, for example, in chapter 1, God comes to him and says, listen, I'm going to use this foreign nation to hurt Israel. Israel is not going the right direction. We need to, we need to correct. And because I control the heart, I'm going to now use these evil people to chastise you, the righteous people. And the prophet says in prayer, what gives? What kind of plan is that? And God says, no, listen, wait, don't worry. It gets better. Okay? So not only will you be more sanctified, more righteous and closer to me, but by, by my doing this, I will bring upon them the judgment that they so righteously deserve. Now, I'm going to go outwit that God. Outwit that God. But we suffer. We struggle. We look out on the world and we think, when is he going to do something? Not realizing that he is, he's doing it right now. He's doing it right now. Go back five years. And, and you say, we'll go down to Vegas and we'll bet on whether or not Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned. And I'll give you $100,000 of free money to bet on it, and you wouldn't bet on it. Why? Because, well, you know, Congress is not in our control. You know, Senate's not in our control. We live in a blue state. My vote doesn't, right? You give all the reasons why it's not going to happen. And then there we were this summer. They did what now? (laughs) Who, what the... In the war against unbelief, the war against the murder of children, this war against God and the fruit, right? And his plan to bless us and make us fruitful and multiply on the earth and have dominion of it, that plan, it goes on. It goes on just like it has always gone on, like it will always go on. Now, Peter says in chapter 3, I love that Peter says this because Peter actually walked around and ate with Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? You are concerned about the suffering that you're enduring in your own little corner of the world. And God is like the entire world is suffering. And I'm going to do something about it. And, and Peter, <laughs> Peter, <laughs> imagine the things Peter saw. Imagine that Peter following Jesus around on, right, on, in some backwater in Israel is like, man, is it only 10 o'clock in the morning? How much is this guy going to do in one day? It feels like we've been out here for a thousand years helping people. I'm tired. I want to lie down. I want to eat some bread. And there's Jesus marching on because it's only 10 o'clock in the morning and he's got a lot of work to do. And then Peter later, right? Jesus ascends into heaven. Peter receives the spirit. He's sitting there and he knows that he was told to go and to preach the gospel to what? Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And he's sitting there going, man, when is this going to happen? And he thinks, you know, maybe I should tell people about this. You know what he's like? One day seems like a thousand years. I can tell you, I can testify to that. And a thousand years seems like one day to him. We're waiting and waiting and waiting for him to do things. And then all of a sudden, when we find out what he is actually doing, we think, how in the world did he pull that off so quick? Right? Think Think of something you prayed about for years. 
And then it happened. And, and, and in the midst of all of those years of prayer, you're thinking, when is this ever? Right? Is he, does he hear us? Is he going to do it? Is it going to happen? And then now, the, <laughs> now we've forgotten more things than we asked that were fulfilled than we, than we can even remember to pray for at the moment. Right? There's things that were like, oh yeah, I forgot, totally forgot about the fact that he used to pray about that all the time. Oh yeah, he took care of that. Because that's how he is. That is how the Lord we serve does it. He's always working, even, even when you're not, even when you're sleeping, even when you have no concept of what he's doing. And to us, all of a sudden, we're like, wow, he did that really quickly. And, 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 and during those times when we are crying out to him, when we are waiting for him to do something, when we're thinking, does he hear us? Does he see us? Does he have any concept of what's going on? That's when we need to remember all of those things that we used to pray about that we don't pray about anymore. If you had to continue to pray about the same concerns and needs as you did 10 years ago, right? think, and they just accumulated. Well, we wouldn't even be sitting here right now. We would just be at home praying for nine hours. Be like, yeah, you know, all these concerns I have. But that's not what happens, is it? A couple weeks from now, the thing we were crying out to God, saying, please, please. Be like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. He took care of that. Because he doesn't move the way we move. He doesn't think the way we think. He doesn't act the way we act. Even, right, even when he is blessing us, he makes our wisdom look foolish. When, when, when he is fighting our enemies, when he is disciplining, every time we look like fools. And, and we gnash our teeth. And we wring our hands. And he's in heaven going, oh, let me just turn that there, heart there. We're going to turn our heart here. Because all of this... Is happening why? Well, well, David, if you recall, left Jerusalem, went down into the valley, ascended onto the Mount of Olives, and what did he do when he was there? Because that is the crucial moment. David said, you know what? I'm going to pray. And he lifts his eyes to the heavens, and he says, God, make the, the wisdom of Ahithophel as foolishness. Now, <laughs> How many times, right, this is, this is how prayer works. David is a mighty man of God. He's thrown spears, he's thrown javelins, he's thrown rocks, he's swung swords, he's carried a shield, he's lived in the wilderness, he's killed lots of people. And one of the mightiest blows he ever gave any of his enemies was the time on the Mount of Olives where he, he simply lifted his hands in prayer and sought the Lord. Because if you go back in the beginning of the story, when he was doing well, that was really how he was fighting. He was praying to God to deliver him, praying to God to show him the way, seeking the advice of the Lord, seeking the will of the Lord. And when he was doing that, that's why his sword was effective. That's why the javelin found its home in the heart of his enemies. And he left all of that, and now he needs to be returned to the wilderness where all of his worldly possessions are taken away from him, all of his comforts are taken away from him, and his eyes are again on the Lord and says, God, do something about this. And God's like, done. Right? Done. Right? You, you, you sent your friend back. Your friend's going to be there. Absalom's going to be there. There's already going to be this big council of war. And at that council of war, the guys who are wise in their own eyes take the bad advice. Now, this is my question, an honest question now for you as Christians. I I think you should vote. I think you should raise your children 
and the fear and admonition of the Lord. I think you should love your wives as Christ loved the church. I think you should submit to your husbands and respect them as you respect the Lord. I, I think you should do all the things that the Lord tells you to do. But I have a question. Is anything that you can do, any obedience that you can give, going to be as effective, as powerful, as when you get on your knees and you say, God, you alone can do this. You alone are going to make this happen. This child of mine, I will try to be as faithful as I possibly can, but you are the one that directs hearts. You are the one who sits in in the heavens and decides what is going to happen. And you know what I think? I think you should make the wisdom of Ahithophel like foolishness. And, and who's going to go for that? Ahithophel's voice, it, it describes it as the voice of God. He gives a plan. It is a genius plan. And, and would you have expected people not to take it? Right? The prayers of righteous people availeth much. They are powerful. They are the real weapon. You can, right? And this is, I can tell you, because I'm in the professional ministry. Here I am, right, with my preaching vest on. And I can work and work and work and work and work and work and read and read and read and write and write and write and type and edit, print, call people, text people. Do you know what the most effective thing is that I do? The really the only thing that actually does anything is when I pray. And that, that's not different for you than it is for me. Because what we automatically want to do is we want to have councils of war. We want to plan. We want to think about what we're going to do. We're going to go out and we're going to make it happen. And it's not until David gets to the other end of himself and gets on his knees and says, you know what, God, you're going to have to take care of this. And boom, A-bomb. It's an A-bomb on their plan. It doesn't matter how big their army gets. And just to demonstrate that that is, in fact, true, right, the one whose voice is like God, the one who is actually wise, even though his motivation is bad, he understands exactly what has occurred now that they have not taken his advice. Because we read in verse 23, Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed. He saddled his donkey, went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. He sees that his vice is not taken. He's like, well, we just got outmaneuvered by God. There's no hope now, so I guess I'm going to just go before my judge in heaven because there's no hope for us. And why? Because, because David threw a spear? Because David threw a javelin at him? No, because David prayed to God, and God from heaven directs the hearts of men, and he brought about the destruction of Absalom's plans, and, he, and Ahithophel gets it. Ahithophel sees the writing on the wall. Psalm 2, chapter, or verse 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. David took refuge in the Lord. Ahithophel and Absalom did not, and, and, and their plans have come to nothing. They are being crushed. Now, we have to make sure that we go back and remember why are all of these people here doing this. What, what is all of this about? Well, if you go back to chapter 12, chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, verses 9 and 10, it says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? 
to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. They are all here because David couldn't keep it in his pants. Because David forgot his duty. David forgot his God. And God loves him too much to let him just go on in that way. And so he calls him back. He says, you despise me, but I will teach you to love my word. I will teach you again what it means to know me, to cry out to me, to look to me. And so he sends him on this long path of destruction in his own household to get him into the wilderness, first to pray, and then amidst his enemies, he sets a table before him. Because what, right, he needed to go back into the wilderness and learn the whole thing over again. Because chapter 17 ends with David at a feast. David at a feast provided by Gentiles. Right? This is God. He, he's put it upon the hearts of these kings to bring him food. And, and, and this, I believe, is where Psalm 23 comes from. Right? A, a table set for me amidst my enemies. He's surrounded by enemies, but God is with him. God is, is going before him. God is confusing the plans of his enemies. And he is providing gracious sustenance to his son David. And that is how our section ends with a feast. Now, is that, what you, right? is that what we have expected for David? He leaves. He has no supply lines. But God sees him. God hears him. God knows him. God hears his prayers. God sees his needs. And God provides. It says, Then David came to, to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. And Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother, Thanks for letting us know. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanam, Shobai, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, and the Ammonites, and, the, and Mahir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gideites, and Rogelim, brought beds and basins and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep and cheese from their herd for David and the people with him to eat, for they said, the people are hungry and weary, thirsty in the wilderness. Now, listen to me. This is exact, right? He's reliving the history of Israel. Remember the Israelites who went out into the wilderness after being delivered miraculously by God? And what did they say? He brought us out here to kill us. That's what he did. Because we could have just died as slaves in Egypt. But what he wanted to do was torment us and starve us to death and give us no water and kill us out here in the wilderness. And God's like, no, guys, come on. I brought you into the wilderness to feed you from my very hand. Okay? And you, if you are in a wilderness, if you are headed out into the darkness, if you're going down into the valley, I want to tell you something, something that God never gets tired of telling us. He sends us into the wilderness that he might feed us there by his own hand. Because Paul says, you either eat at the table of the Lord, or you eat at the table of demons. And we are like, no, that's probably not true. And then we go and gorge ourselves on every conceivable demon table that we can possibly find. And God's like, no, no, you're eating the wrong things. Come. I'm going to use evil people and evil circumstances and suffering and tragedy. And what I want you to do is go back into the wilderness. 
where you will remember me, where you will pray to me, where I will feed you with my own, from my very hand. And you think, no, 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 that's not that. No, come on, the World Economic Forum, right? President Biden, we didn't win the Senate. Where was the red wave? And look at my bank account. Look at how crazy my children are. Look at how my wife and I can't stop fighting. Uh, this, that, and the other thing. We come up with all these reasons. And he's like, yes, come. Come out into the wilderness. I will continue to take away every demonic table that you are feasting at so that you would come back into the wilderness, pray to me, and that I might feed you from my very hand. That is what he does. That is what the exiles needed to hear who first read these words. This is what David needs to hear. This is what you need to hear. And this is what I need to hear. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Come. Let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down. And he will bind us up. Why does he lead us into the wilderness? To feed us. Why does he tear us? That he might heal us. Why does he break us? That he might bind us up. And, and while doing that, we become, right? We are deified. We become sanctified. We become glorified. We become living sons and daughters of God for eternity. And all of his enemies are destroyed. It's not just theory. It's not a spiritual reality. You're in this world, and that is what he is doing through the circumstances in which you are living. Cleansing and purifying and perfecting you and keeping up destruction for the enemies, his enemies, which he will deliver on his second advent. So listen. If God is leading you into the wilderness, if you are in the wilderness, if you've been in the wilderness, the reason is because he wants you to return to him, return to him in prayer, that he might show you that he is, he's never been anywhere else but there, waiting to feed you from his very hand. And, and, and keep, your, keep your eyes off the machinations of mankind. Their wisdom is foolishness. And keep your eyes on him, on his hand, on his purposes. There is nothing that you can do for yourself. He can do all things in you, through you, and for you. And how do we know this? Because that's what he's always done. And that's why stories like this exist. It was never out of his control. David was never in any real danger to his soul because he is in the hands of God. And even when it looks like the enemies are on the ascendancy, it is really just right to get them closer to the Lord God where he is holding his sword to hack them down. And that is the world in which you live. Amen. Father, we thank you for your son David and for his trials and tribulations. We thank you, Lord, that you heard his prayer, that you confounded the wisdom of Ahithophel, that you through Solomon, continued your plan, Lord, to raise up your anointed over the whole earth. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, um, who's been given a name above all names, who every knee will bow to, every voice will cry out. We know, Lord, that your plans ultimately for mankind are to save us from ourselves, to save this world. I pray for all of us who are suffering and all of us who are in the wilderness, that we would return to you, Lord, and that we would, that we would receive your grace that even amidst our enemies, there is a feasting table set by you at which you are the head. You are here with us. I pray, God, that we would feel your presence no matter what we're experiencing in our private lives, Lord, and that you would be glorified in and through how we respond and how we pray to you, Lord, and how we serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.